Hello, welcome to episode 7 of Sportscast Podcast. This week we have got a big week in the Formula 1 at the Silverstone Grand Prix. Talking about the Tour de France update with Liam, US Sports, Cricket and the Ashes, Wimbledon, Boxing, Football and much more to discuss. Kicking us off first will be the quick look back at week one the first first nine stages of the tour de france the early doors saw adam yates take the yellow jersey which he took it on a stage win where him and another rider had had a breakaway and it was his twin brother simon yates and he beat his twin brother to the line which i think would have a bit of bragging rights back home yeah stage five saw Jay Hindley take his first stage win at his first Tour de France, come off the back of his 2022 Giro d'Italia win. So I think Hindley's going to have some career ahead of him if he can sort of put anything back to back. And he is currently sat third in the general classification. Stage six, again, saw Pogacar um, just come good. Him and Vingegaard had a bit of a breakaway. And that's where they took the yellow jersey back off Hindley, who taking it at stage five so they have uh, they have now separated themselves at the top there those two stage seven saw Philipson take the stage win uh, sprint with Cavendish who he pipped with about three or four meters to go I know you don't know too much on cycling Mark Cavendish holds the joint record for stage wins at the Tour de France okay. with, with 34 and he this year is his last Tour de France and he is, if he wins one stage at a sprint, he has the outright record. Going into the final, maybe sort of 20, 30 metres, he kept having to sit up, sit back down on his seat. He was having a gear problem. And he, he would, any time he put too much pressure on, he'd drop the gears. So you sort of see it with about sort of 15 metres to go. He just sort of he sits down and just has to pedal and he hasn't got enough in him. So Philipson beat him by half a metre. Wow, over a course stage of how long? It would have been 202 kilometres, I think, yesterday. 202 kilometres beat by, by half, a meter. half a metre. Yeah, they they got the same time on the general classification because they were that close. Stage eight, however, saw Pedersen take the stage win, but Mark Cavendish took a crash. It looks like he's probably broken his shoulder and he's out of the whole of the Tour de France. So that, on Friday, that half a metre was his last opportunity to take the outright record and he's now out of the Tour de France. Well, they were absolutely gutted for him but there was still a stage today. Stage 9 saw the return of uh, the mountain sent Leonard de Blat the first time since 1988 that they've gone to the summit. Michael, the Canadian Michael Woods claimed his first staged win on the Tour de France finished eight minutes ahead of Pogacar and Vingegaard who broke from the main peloton the summit was an 11% incline for about a kilometre that takes about sort of maybe 12-13 minutes to get to, it is just steep, so a few people were 
sort of making little breakaways and, and just fading back and fading back. And uh, right at the end, Pogacar and Vingegaard had a bit of a tussle. They both broke out of the peloton and uh, came through. Uh, Pogacar took about eight seconds out of Vingegaard's lead. The general classification as it stands, Vingegaard's got the yellow jersey. Pogacar's 17 seconds behind. And then, as expected, a bit of a gap back to third in Jay, Jay Hindley. 2 minute 40, Rodriguez at 4.22. Then you've got the twins, Adam and Simon Yates. Adam's 4 minutes 39 back and Simon's 4 minutes 44 back. So nothing between the two the two brothers. And then in seventh place sits Tom Pidcock of Grenadiers, Ineos. You've got three British drivers sat, British riders sat 5th, 6th and 7th, which... When you haven't got Chris Froome, there's no Geraint Thomas. You know, Cavendish is now out to still have three British drivers in the top 10. It's a massive achievement, but it does look like it is going to stay between Vingegaard and Pogacar again this year. So moving on to the Formula One, and this week it is the British Grand Prix, which is both of our home races. Really looking forward to the British Grand Prix, such an iconic racetrack. But what has been happening in the world of F1 since last week's Austrian Grand Prix? There's a fantastic, lovely new chrome livery on the McLarens. Have you seen it? I have. I've not. Do you like it? No, I like the orange. I prefer you like the orange? Yeah. I think they call themselves the Papaya Army. Papaya orange. I, I, I prefer I prefer the orange libraries than, than this chrome. Okay. The chrome is uh, to celebrate, I think it's, it's 15 years or, or something along those lines of chrome, which is their main sponsor. Yeah. But it's also a throwback to the 2007 uh, Lewis McLaren, Lewis Hamilton yeah. uh, McLaren, which was, in my opinion, one of the best-looking Formula 1 cars. It, it's top three. Yeah. Top three. Um, behind other McLarens. Behind other McLarens. 88 centers. Yeah. Um, so yeah, lovely, lovely McLaren, uh, new livery for the McLarens. Upgrades as well for the McLarens. So last week saw Lando Norris have a really, really strong Austrian Grand Prix. This week, upgrades too, also this week for Ferrari, who had a really strong Austrian Grand Prix, if it wasn't for penalties. So hopefully we just should see some competition sort of for, potentially for Red Bull, potentially for Mercedes. Did you see the final standings post-penalties? So it actually changed to when, to when we spoke last week. Hamilton dropped below Russell. Yes. Because he got another five seconds. Yeah. Signs picked one up later. I think it was 14 of the 20 drivers in the end picked up. Yeah. Your top three did it and your bottom three yeah. or something. And I think there's a dis discussion, I know we've had a conversation around whether it is the track's fault, whether it's the FIA's fault, whether it's the rules, whether it's the cars, whether it's the drivers, what is the reason for all these track limits. I don't agree. I don't agree that it, it they should necessarily change the track. However, I also don't, agree or, or like the fact that we are seeing so many penalties and the FIA are taking so long to serve them because obviously it affects the strategies and it's, if it affects the decision making on the day. I saw a stat that said, I think there was 1,354 laps completed with, um, I think it was Hulkenberg that, that didn't complete the race so he had an anomaly amount yeah. of laps. 1,200 of those laps was laps exceeded. Uh, lap, uh, Track limits, exceeded. track limits. Mm -hmm. So 
only 150 odd laps out of 1350 odd laps were all within the track limits that to me is not a driver issue that's a the, the type of corners they are you 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 flat out through the second to last and you lift and coast through the last if you put the track limits in there you have to back off and it takes away some of that racing and i think that's why they were absolutely on edge yeah yeah let us know your thoughts on our socials at sportscast pod uk williams also showing potential coming into this weekend too if you look at austria and silverstone last year they had two very good races they had a very good race last week albon's eighth alongside uh, alonso i think in ninth yeah or, or tenth so again he's made made q3 and i think maybe their their car is set up for this type of track i hope williams do but i do think if you're looking at patterns these are the tracks they tend to do yeah well at. i was watching an interview with the new uh, williams ceo not brand new but new new in the grand scheme of like this year, uh, this year last yeah this year, year. Yeah. um he was asked the question are williams aiming to fix the problems with the slow car this season or are they aiming to build a build for the future and he said that they he his vision of his goal is to work over the next five years uh, presumably they've got the funding to then last the next five years um to build the infrastructure and build the teams and build the processes to to, to get back to a race winning team I think I think Williams won't struggle for funding anymore. I think, with without the Williams family as heavily involved anymore, I think they'll go outside for sponsorship rather than try and do a lot internal, which yeah. they tried to do. So I think they will now go to bigger companies. And I think the fact that a lot of people they know what Williams was within F one, they know what Frank was within F one. So I think that I don't think they'll struggle to get yeah. some big names in. I just don't think they wanted to do it before. Whereas now. They have to. Yeah, cool. So qualifying took place on the Saturday at the Silverstone Grand Prix circuit. Sergio Perez yet again out in Q1, which will see him start at 16th position on Sunday. It's the fifth time in five weeks that he hasn't made Q3. He was able to deliver a really good lap time, but the track continued to improve towards the end of the session, which inevitably knocked him out of the session. Stroll again out in Q2, whereas Alonso was through to Q3. And yet again, as we were just discussing, Alex Albon in Williams through to Q3 yet again. I think Albon's an absolute flyer at the moment, do you agree? Yeah, he did well before Austria. And again, I think he has made Q3 three times in a row. I think Perez, strategy-wise, going out early to try and put a time in with track development. We know it was wet and it's got drier as, yeah. it's, got, as it's gone through, so... I was listening to something this morning and they're saying that quite quite a few years in a row now the Red Bull sets the cars up not geared towards Max but the developments are geared towards Max so the, his competitor always struggles more as the season goes on which I think we have seen over the, over the last few years so yeah. maybe that's now the stage that Perez is at where he's struggling with that car because as we're seeing Ferrari, McLaren bringing in upgrades, where Red Bull are bringing them in, Perez seems to now struggle. So so I think maybe Perez is just struggling more with the car now than what he did initially to start with, whereas 
everything's geared towards Max's improvement. Yeah. And I think that's why he's struggling. I think, yeah, I, I agree with you. But at the same time, obviously in Austria, um, he started well out of the top 10. I think it was 15th or 16th or something like that. He ended up finishing third. I think... And he did have a fantastic drive last Sunday. So we, I, I know and you know he is a very, very talented driver. But I think when you are when you are a talented driver, you can't do that with one hand metaphorically tied behind your back because just, just to aid your teammate. So at the end of Q1, as the chequered flag was waved, Lando Norris put in an absolutely sensational blistering lap to put his car on provisional pole. The crowd, not sound cliche, the crowd went wild. The crowd went wild. Less than 30 seconds later, Max Verstappen crossed the finish line to take pole position away from Lando Norris by two tenths. However, Oscar Piastri also put his car on the second row. Fantastic qualifying session for McLaren. So Max hit a 126.7, beating Norris by two tenths. So the qualifying result then for Sunday's race was Max Verstappen on pole, Lando Norris in second position. Piastri and Leclerc make up the second row with Sainz, Russell, Hamilton, Albon, Alonso and Gasly making up the remainder of the top ten. Norris on the front row, Williams in eighth. Should be a great race. Moving on to the race then, and what a fantastic race we were treated to. Lando Norris with a much better reaction time and acceleration off the line means he led into turn one. He led the British Grand Prix to the delight of the fans for five laps before Max retook the lead with the DRS-assisted overtake. Piastri in third told to hold position by the team as Norris, Norris kept within a second of Max which is, of course, in his DRS range. Really impressive early display from the McLaren pair. The big moment came on lap 31 of 52, where Kevin Magnussen had an engine failure. Hamilton, pitting under a safety car, gets the jump on Piastri, and when we go racing again, it was Max in first, Lando in second on hard tyres. Hamilton on scrubbed softs and Piastri again on hards. Russell was also chasing Piastri, who was chasing Alonso, who was chasing Sainz. Perez had managed to work his way up into eighth and was chasing for a top three finish. The team said this was well within his reach. On the restart, Max bolted really early on the soft tyres and pulled a big gap very, very quickly. Hamilton right on Lando's gearbox, Russell right on Piastri's gearbox. Unbelievable defending from both McLaren drivers, lighting up their hard tyres brilliantly. McLaren running a higher downforce setup this weekend, meaning they were able to power through the Maggots and Beckett's corners, pulling enough of a gap between those and the Mercedes, allowing them to maintain the pace through Sector 2 and maintain the lead through the long straights of Sector 3. On lap 44, Sainz amazingly loses three places on tyres that just were not suited to that Ferrari on, 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 on today's race. Perez down the inside, Albon round the outside and Leclerc on the straight, wheel-to-wheel -wheel racing. Lando and Hamilton both given black and white flags for track limits on lap 49 of 52. 
However, after 52 laps of brilliant racing at Silverstone, Max Verstappen wins the British Grand Prix. The new McLaren rocket ship, driven by Lando Norris, comes home in second. Lewis Hamilton taking the last step on the podium on in third. Fourth goes to the other McLaren of Oscar Piastri and George Russell finishing in fifth. I think Perez coming back the way he did just goes to show how good that Red Bull is. Yes. He, he can't whack a car flying lap. To be fair, nothing against the car. It's been his not ability, but it's maybe his confidence. But he, he just picks people off, pure pace. No one, even when he's sort of coming into the people that are in ninth, tenth place, and he started six, seven, eight, nine places behind him at times, and they're just saying he's not part of our race. Yeah. They, they, they all know that he's just going to come through and... They're just sitting ducks all the way through. Yeah, a really, really poor race for Ferrari as well, finishing ninth and tenth. But he Perez wasn't necessarily driving super aggressively. He was just driving to the advantages of the Red Bull car, knowing it's got blistering traction and acceleration and really, really heavy, really, really high top line speed. Um, and and to be fair to Perez, a lot of his overtakes were in corners, and they weren't. Um, weren't DRS's enabled overtakes, which is fair play to him. Red Bull have now won 11 races in a row, with Max winning six consecutive Grand Prix. 30 points for McLaren puts them now in fifth position in the Constructors' Championship, which is a fantastic weekend result for them. Driver of the day, of course, went to Lando Norris. Rounding off a weekend dominated by McLaren and Red Bull, of course, a fantastic weekend of racing. We look forward now to the Hungarian Grand Prix on the 23rd of July. This week saw the third test of the Ashes at Headingley, which, coming off the back of the second test at Lords, all the controversy there around... Bearstow's wicket. Did you see that? The throw at the wicket as the over. Was I didn't finished. see it. I heard about it. I heard it testing the integrity and moral compass of, of cricket itself. At the, at the end of an over, um, so at the end of the six balls, you the, the batters go into the middle, they have a quick chat, the bowlers get together, they change bowlers, the, the umpires come over because they swap ends and things. And you, you see it on the replays. The end of the over necessarily hadn't been called, but the, the side umpire had started to make a walk over. You see him walking over the background of some of the Aussie players. Bairstow was very keen to come out of his crease. Carey, the Australian wicketkeeper, had really only just taken hold of the ball and in one motion caught it through the ball back. So, uh, Do you think it's laziness from England? I think it's pre-assumption that, that I should be allowed to just do this. If I, if my team had done it, I'd be calling for the wicket. If it was against my team, I'd be saying, mm, it's a bit sketchy. It's one of those. It, Looking forward just a couple of weeks. So the 100 cricket series will be back on the 1st of August with the Trent Rockets versus the Southern Brave. And... It will be a doubleheader. Every single day it will be a doubleheader with the women playing around 3 o'clock and the men playing around half past 6. Uh, Wednesday the 2nd of August, 
couple of matches, Thursday the 3rd of August couple of matches, and it just runs all the way through, right the way through into the final on Saturday the 26th of August. So uh, a, a cricket-packed 100 August. For me, I'm not a massive fan of the 100, and I think it goes to show with how we're doing currently in this this these Ashes series that we're probably not playing enough test cricket, we're playing too many different formats of the game that aren't allowing the, the batsmen necessarily, maybe the calmness, you know, a few of the early wickets or a few of the wickets and previous tests have been swiping at the ball and sort of the more extravagant shots that you get in the shorter formats. Yeah, I think it was that I didn't watch the majority of it, but I did watch a small amount. I think it was the second test where Australia switched to bowling really short, and it, it, uh, England seemed to really, really strive. They, they had to hit every single ball. They, they just tried they, to pull at everything. Yeah. And they kept topping it and getting caught. Yeah. And do you think that's the mentality of, I need to hit as many points as I can because I've only got 100 balls? Yeah. And no other country play this format of cricket. Yeah. So I'm I'm not you know the the T20s is around the world one day is around the world. Third test started off very well. Stuart Broad taking a wicket on only the fifth ball. It's we, we've sort of struggled with the bowling a little bit. It seems to be a decent wicket for bowling. Days one and two just just sort of both teams um, batter out really. Nothing spectacular. Aussies took a twenty seven ish run lead into. To the third day to the second innings which was rained off for a lot of it but Australia were, did end up 224 all out need England needing 251 to win little bit of a shaky start at 90 or so for three but eventually England did win by three wickets which has taken the series to 2-1 Australia going into the fourth test Today, Brooke hit a superb 75, which I think England needed someone to step up. Root fell pretty cheaply. So did Stokes. Mitchell Stark, the pick of the bowlers with a fiver. Five for 78 as well, so didn't really give too much up. Uh, sort of took a wicket for every 15 or so runs. At one point, though, he was looking very nervy. England needed 47 I think it was 48 for four. They had four, they needed 48 runs with four wickets remaining. And the average test, the, the, the test average of the remaining batsmen added up to like 46. So if they'd all hit their average scores that they've ever achieved in test cricket, they would have actually have lost, but they did eventually come through and see it out. So it does leave it finally poised at 2-1. <laughs> Boxing, a little bit of a quiet period at the minute. Chris Eubank and Smith have got their new date. It's not a public date yet, so hopefully that will be towards the end of August, maybe, early September. You've got Usich versus Daniel Dubois, August 26th, and Anthony Joshua, Dillian White have agreed a fight for August 12th. So you could probably see... Joshua Usage fighting around the same time are they, are they trying to align their calendars I, I 
don't know. I'd like to think they won't fight again, and, and I'd rather see Fury come into that equation somewhere. But either way, Joshua Dillian White was a fantastic first fight. I think the second fight with Joshua's trajectory at the minute and Dillian White sort of maybe not kicking on, that will be a very, very exciting second fight. Football, again, not a lot going on, but last night did see England under-21s win the European Championship. Yes. 1-0 against Spain with Trafford saving a penalty in the 99th minute. Trafford's on the brink of signing for Vincent Company's Burnley from, a, uh, from Manchester City for £19 million. player that's never played in the Premier League going to yes he's going to be in the Premier League with Burnley but for £19 million yeah but arguably if he can or if he can have a good season with Burnley and Burnley stay up then then that might be worth every penny worth every penny I think Burnley will stay up this season anyway yeah with what other team with, with other teams that are around them and where teams that were from last year this week saw Declan Rice confirm his signing for Arsenal Mason Mount signed for Manchester United. Harry Kane still at Spurs, but plenty linking him still yeah, with Bayern for, Munich. For how long? Where, where do you think he's going to go? Do you think he's going to go? I think he'll end up at Spurs. He'll stay at Spurs? Yeah, because I don't think Bayern Munich want to pay as much as they want to pay, or Spurs want. And Bayern Munich have never been massive spenders over the years. The I'm sure people will want to correct us, but they've when they buy from other teams in, in the country, they don't tend to spend a lot of money. Yeah. So I can imagine that, you know, I think the last I saw, they put in about 70 million euros for him. And I think Spurs will want closer to 100, and I just can't see them going up to that much. Yeah. Man United, I'm not sure, again, want to spend that amount of money on a player with 12 months left on his contract. But alternatively... Man United haven't got confirmation if they're being sold yet or not, so yeah. they don't know where they are. So are the Glazers going to want to fork out £100 million for a player that's they're never going to see play? Yeah. But arguably, I mean, Harry Kane, would, his motivation to move would be silverware. And Manchester United potentially, yeah. I mean, they were third in the league last year, but they were quite a way behind Arsenal and City. Um, if you move to like Saudi Arabia and, and, and Dubai and all that kind of places, is the silverware worth the the plaque that it's printed on, not, if you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm, I think if he was to stay in the Premier League, like Man United, it's not for silverware, it's for the all-time Premier League scoring record. Yeah. If he goes to Bayern Munich, he wants silverware. Yeah. So I can't... If he goes to Saudi, he wants money. Yes. <laughs> I, I didn't want to say it out loud, but that's that is that is effectively it. Real Madrid signed Gula from Fenerbahce, who has been hailed the Turkish Messi, which I think over the years we've seen a few players come onto the scene that have been their country's Messi and unfortunately never really come to fruition. Madrid predominantly do well when they sign youngsters like this. Sort of early, you know, they've got Martin Ogergaard as a youngster, a sort of 16 year old, and went a bit quiet for a little while, but look at him now at Arsenal. Absolutely flourishing. Timber signed for Arsenal, highly rated defender. Newcastle are looking at Harvey Barnes, Chelsea for Dybala. 
big one, I think, is Inter Miami. Also looking at Eden Hazard from Real Madrid. And after the, the sort of signed Messi, they've signed Jordi Alba. And they're looking at Eden Hazard as well. So you'll sort of have three massive names at Inter Miami who haven't won in 10, the bottom of their conference in America. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure what some of the players' motives are to go there. I mean, Messi could have gone anywhere. And, I mean, I'm not saying he's not on a lot of money at Inter Miami because he's going to be on telephone numbers to us. But he could have got more elsewhere. Why would you go to a team at the yeah. bottom? I mean, he's been offered he's been offered things that aren't necessarily financially beneficial to him right now, but will come in. I know he's he's got like an Adidas contract where he sells kits or something like that, and then it's part of Apple TV's rights, and he's got an opportunity to buy buy a team or or something along those lines. But financially, I don't think he is going to be hard up. But why why into Miami? Is it he's such a strange? Strange movement, and why all of a sudden have Inter Miami decided I'm going to buy three of the arguably the world's top players, if not the top player in Messi? I think it, it doesn't make much sense knowing that Minnesota have signed Timu Puki and they've hailed that as their greatest ever signing, a player that did pretty well with Norwich in the Premier League, <laughs> to another team that's buying half of the Spanish leagues, some of the greatest players. They've been linked with Sergio Busquets, Edin Hazard. They've got Jordi Alba. They've got, I mean, they can only have three players outside of the salary cap. So you're not going to, they're not going to sign them all, but because they can't afford to. But um, it doesn't make sense as to, it's clearly David Beckham's pull into that team. So the Wimbledon Championships are well underway. If you haven't already listened to our Sportscast podcast special episode, please head over to our socials or our Spotify channel where you can listen to a breakdown of what Wimbledon is as well as looking forward to the rest of the championship. The opening week saw some great matches in both the men's and ladies' singles with all the bookies' favourites breezing through the first two rounds. Not a fantastic week for the British men. Andy Murray cruised through his first match to victory, but fell three sets to two, both physically and on the scoreboard as well. Halfway through his round two match, Murray suffered a painful slide and a knee injury. He battled on, but ultimately was too much for him to cope, and he ended up dropping out of the Wimbledon Championships. Similarly, Cameron Norrie knocked out in round two to Eubanks of the USA, and in the ladies, British Katie Bolter knocked out of a round three tie by reigning champion Eleanor Rybakina. I watched some of that last night and take nothing away from what Katie Bolter's achieved first time on centre court and, and things. But you could see who was the defending champion. And yeah, who, it's who an unlucky wasn't. draw. Yes, yeah, she, she looked incredible. Just... And she's she's a tall girl as well. You couldn't get a lob in. Your wingspan's incredible. She she looked like she she looked every esque of a, a Wimbledon champion. Yeah. 
Looking forward to the last 16, big names include Carlos Alcaraz playing on Monday against Berenetti. Sitsipas. Who is the 2021 runner-up? Who is the 2021 runner-up, indeed. Uh, Pass against Eubank again on Monday with Djokovic currently on centre court as we're recording. However, he looks like he's going to book his place in the quarterfinals. In the ladies, you have Swiatekka on centre court again, looking likely to p- progress. Then Rybakina and Sabalenka playing on Monday. Quite an enjoyable Wimbledon so far, if not a little bit predictable. How are you finding the tournament? Yeah, I think I think it's that. There's a lot of media hype and a lot of interest around Alcaraz. Yep. And his who won Queens? Yes, but he's he's a very personable and very likable player and I think people yeah. are, are really warm into him and he's, he's still only a young lad so in the opposite way to Nick Kyrgios Nick Kyrgios who unfortunately isn't there but I think Nick Kyrgios is he's a little bit of the he's, he's the he's, you love him or you hate him yeah. I love him as a player I love that sport needs those kind of characters you know you've got Gerwin Price in the darts that will have a bit of argy-bargy on stage and things Nick Kyrgios you know, Ronnie O'Sullivan and the snooker has a bit with referees, bits in the crowd. And I think that Kyrgios, you need that sort of player to to have in the game, yeah. keep in the game. It's the charisma of the sport, although some some of the people that you've just mentioned, their actions you, you, are marmalade, are marmite, sorry, that they, 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 you either love them or hate them. Yeah, and I, I, I really like Nick Kyrgios. Unfortunately, can't be there um, with his injury. Andy Murray said after his defeat the other night that he doesn't think he's got the motivation to come back to Wimbledon. And I was talking with Tom on a previous episode that I think I think this will be his last Wimbledon. Um, and I think he's all but confirmed that. I think physically he can't compete. At, he can compete, and you know he'll compete at a good level, but. Wimbledon is the one where everybody steps up, everybody yeah. steps out, and, and this is what they want to win. So, but it's been a good tournament. Quite a bit of rain delays. British summer. Don't expect anything less. That's all we've got time for this week. Tune in next week where we'll be looking at week two of Wimbledon, further stages of the Tour de France. More football gossip, other things from the world of sport. Catch us on our socials, Twitter and Instagram at SportsCastPod UK. I've been Liam. I've been Jordan. See you next week. <laughs>